All right, we're in the book of Exodus, back in the book of Exodus. If you were with us in the spring, you know that we started back in January, went through May in the book of Exodus, and we got through about half of that book, took a break for the summer, and now we are back, and we are about to undertake some, some massive stuff over the next few weeks, a lot that we're going, to be, uh, we're going to be covering. As we get back into this, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 today, Exodus chapter 19, uh, pretty much that entire chapter is what we're going to cover which is kind of the prologue leading up to the Ten Commandments, which we won't get to this week, but we'll, we'll start and be in for a few weeks uh, starting, uh, starting next week. So uh, I wonder how many people in here have had the opportunity to meet someone famous, like, like pretty famous that, that we would all know. Kind of raise your hand. You, you met somebody famous, even if just, just briefly. So a handful of you, you've, you've run into... Uh, You've run into and you've been able to, to see someone, a, a celebrity, um, and I wonder, you don't have to, you don't have to shout this out because everybody has a little bit different experience, but I wonder what it was like when you did. I wonder what it was like when you had a chance to, to meet someone that is truly, uh, truly famous. I had a chance to meet uh, an NFL quarterback whenever I was in, in high school, hang out with him for a big uh, chunk of the day to get some autographs of my favorite uh, my favorite players went to a sports show. I was able to get Frank Thomas's autograph, who was my guy whenever I was in high school. A lot of y'all probably don't know who Frank Thomas is, and I'm sorry. That means you're not baseball fans, and you've missed out. But for me, when I was 16 and I got Frank Thomas's autograph, I was on cloud nine. I thought it was one of the coolest days ever. And you got autographs back then. You didn't get selfies because cell phones... I mean, they were a thing, but they weren't a thing for high schoolers, that's for sure. And uh, the pictures on cell phones, those were not a thing. Like, that, did, that didn't happen. So you got autographs. But now, now today, selfies have replaced autographs for that, that cool thing that you want with a cool uh, person. So I don't have the picture uh, then, but whenever I was there, I got to meet some other guys. I got to shake hands and stand and talk with Joe Montana and John Elway due to contractual obligations. They could not sign an autograph for me at this sports show. But I got to hang out with them, talk to them. So that was kind of cool. That was fun. I, I was on cloud nine that day. It was, a cool, it was a cool thing. This past fall, Emily and I got a chance to go to New York and to, to hang out at the, the Today Show, do the thing in the morning, you know, when you stand there forever just so you can have a picture that says, hey, kids, we're here without you. That, that, is, what, that is what we did. So we did that, and it just so happens that that day, uh, it, was, uh, it was a day where Shaq was there, and we were able to hang out with Shaq and get our picture made. I may have shared this in a sermon before. I'm not sure. If I did, I'll probably do it again, because not that many cool things happen to me, and i got to work this stuff into a sermon however I can. So um, we got a chance to, to meet Shaq and to hang out with him, and that is a large human being. Seven, six, I think, something like that, 300-some-odd pounds. He's a big dude. Uh, but he was super nice, took a picture, and uh, I, I handed him my, my phone. I was going to try to do this selfie thing, and Emily and I are really bad at selfies. It takes, I don't know, 30 minutes or so for us to get a decent selfie. But he was like, oh, I got this, and he just puts his hand out there, and he doesn't need a selfie stick because his arm is its own selfie stick. And, uh, and we got our picture made with Shaq, and so that was really cool. That was really uh, a neat thing. Emily got her picture made with, with Hoda, and if you don't know who Hoda is, then you probably don't want to know who Hoda is. It's not a big deal, but for those of you that do, uh, it's probably you ladies, Emily thought it was really cool. I was like, whatever, fine, we'll get our picture made. Uh, but it was kind of a cool thing to have a brush with celebrity that day, to be able to, to meet someone, to shake their hand, to be able to get a picture made with them. Uh, I've heard all kinds of stories about people meeting celebrities, and it's less than glorious. People always say, don't meet your heroes, because 
They won't be your heroes much longer after that. That's not an unusual circumstance for somebody to, uh, to walk away and say, I wish I hadn't met that guy, but meeting Shaq was cool. He was as nice as you would think he is. He was, uh, he was cool. It's not unusual today, especially for young people, but, but really for, for a lot of folks, to have the goal of being famous. Like, that's their life goal. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be famous. Famous for what? I don't care. I just want to be famous. I don't understand that goal. I will take anonymity anytime. I would be happy. It's nice for me to be able to walk through the mall and realize that no one even knows I'm there. That's totally fine with me if I can just blend in to the wall. But some people, they want to be famous so that everywhere they go, people are there to take pictures of them and to do uh, all kinds of different stuff. It sounds miserable to me, but this is a common goal for people these days. When they grow up, they want to be famous. Somehow our culture has become obsessed with the idea of celebrity and being well-known, being out there. And I'm sure social media has a lot to do with this, but even before social media, this was a big deal. And so today people will follow, follow stars on social media, their YouTube channels, they'll buy their products. They, they want to be around, they want to know, they want to be identified somehow as either being famous or being around famous people. And this morning, as we get back to the book of Exodus, what we're going to see is the opportunity, the first real opportunity that the people of God have a chance to meet God, so to speak. Now, we've seen the burning bush. We saw that uh, a few months ago where, where Moses comes face-to-face with the burning bush, face-to-face with, uh, with God, if you can call that face-to-face, but it comes into, the, in, into God's presence, and he's able to talk with him. And so we saw that a little bit, But what we're going to see today is this chance for Israel to finally meet with and know this God that has rescued them, this God that has redeemed them, that has set them free from slavery, set them free from uh, from Pharaoh's hard and difficult rule, set them free from all of this, delivered them through the Red Sea, and now they get a chance to meet him. And what we're going to see is that we're going to get a whole new idea of who God is. He is not some cool celebrity. I don't think it takes much for us to be able to say that. That's not an earth-shattering thing for me to say. He's not an exceptional athlete. He's not this this thing where you, you, you go up to him and you say, hey, let's take a cool selfie. Moses isn't there with the with him in the in the burning bush, like, let me let me get this in there. He's not up on top of Mount Sinai where we're gonna see today, trying to figure out how they can get him and this smoking cloud all together in a picture. That's not how it works whenever you come to meet God. He goes up to this this mountain. And he, he meets a, a God who is there to make himself known. The title for this series is No Other Gods. And I think we've seen how the book of Exodus warrants that title. The plagues alone would have been enough to show us that. And we'll certainly see in the Ten Commandments as we go forward how that is even underscored. That idea that there are no other gods save Yahweh alone, save God alone. But if you'll remember the question that the entire book of Exodus seeks to answer, the one that we've gone back to over and over and over, and I told you whenever we we were there, I could go back to this question almost every sermon in the book of Exodus. It's the one that Pharaoh asks in in chapter 5. And he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? 
That is the question that Pharaoh asks. That is the question that drives us today. It's the same question that we have to ask. Who is the Lord? If you're here this morning and you're, you're trying to figure out what is it that they're talking about, what is it that this God of the Bible is about, this is the question that you're asking. Who is the Lord? And why should I obey him? If you're here this morning and you've been around church your entire life and you've heard all these teachings, you've heard these sermons before, you're still asking that question. Now, maybe you think you have the answer to the question, who is the Lord? I would submit to you that you can never have that answer fully. But even if you feel like you have the answer, perhaps more than someone who's not been at church, you have some idea of who the Lord is. The question is, how and why should I obey him? This is the question that comes over and over and over throughout this book. And we've seen the ways that God has come and he's interacted with his people. How he's freed them from bondage. How he's provided them water from a rock, manna from the sky, quail on the ground. He's given, them, given this all to his people and in some way each of those things reveal a little bit more about who he is. He's showing a little bit more about what he does, how he interacts with his people, how he functions. We could have just as easily named this series The God Who Makes Himself Known. No other gods works all throughout the book, but, but the God who makes himself known, that makes, it, that makes perfect sense as well. Because he's showing us chapter after chapter, we're getting a little bit more information about who God is. Remember, up until this point, Israel didn't know a whole lot about who this God was. He had come to Abraham. He had met with Jacob. They had some idea of what their their forefathers had, had described as who God was, but they didn't know him very well. And for almost 400 years, he had been silent. And they wondered if he had abandoned them completely. And then he shows up and he starts declaring things about who he is. And through the plagues, we learn a little bit more about who he is and how he rules over the other gods. And we get to know him a little bit more and a little bit more. And then as they go throughout the desert and they wonder, we get to know him a little bit more as he provides for them. We get to see his grace and his mercy, his provision, his strength. And now as we go into this next portion of this book and we start to see the law being given, we're going to get to know him even more. But before we get to those Ten Commandments that we'll talk about next week, chapter 19 has some important things to tell us about what it's like to meet with God, to get to know Him more. It's not quite like meeting that celebrity that you've always loved. It's a decidedly different experience. And what we're going to see is a God that has come to us, but that is not like us. So let's read in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. So we touched on this already in this book, this idea that comes up here in just these first few verses. And the point remains, and while we have to continue to go to it, 
is that we've probably already forgotten that we've talked about this. And the idea is that God is gracious in salvation, and we are quick to forget this. God is gracious in salvation, and we are quick to forget this. They're just a few weeks, maybe a few months out of of being delivered from Egypt. They're sitting in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai where God said that he would meet with his people. It has just happened. And God already feels the need to remind them of what it is that he's done. Remember what we had seen in chapters 15, 16, 17, 18 is that Israel has started to grumble. They started to ask the question, why did you bring us out here just to die, Moses? They were whining. They had forgotten how bad things were. They convinced themselves that things really weren't that bad off after all. And they were whining and complaining to Moses. It was, it was so frustrating for him, but he, he asked God to spare them and their whining. And what we, what we saw was that the people forgot how gracious God was to deliver them. Again and again and again, we see this in the book of Exodus, and if you read throughout the Old Testament, it is on almost every page. God is reminding people. He's telling the prophets to remind the people. The narrative reminds the people over and over and over again to remember who God is and remember what he has done. Remember how he set you free. Remember how he split the sea open. Remember what he has done. Have you ever thought about why that's there so often in the Old Testament? Why is this instruction there? You know, there's two ways that you can be told to remember. One is like the friend that helped you that one time, and then he uses that one time that he helped you to hold it over your head so that you have to help him 17 other times. Do you, you know who I'm talking about? Do you guys have that friend? I've had that friend before who's like, hey, you remember that time I helped you, you move that one time? Remember that time I helped you with that paper one time? Well, hey, I'm moving for the sixth time in the last seven months, and I need you to come help me move again. And they just continue to like, drive that home, hold that one thing that they did over your head so that you will come and help them over and over and over. It's used as like a bat to wield against you to say, hey, I did this, now you owe me. But that's not how God uses this idea of remembering. Instead, what he's doing is he's reminding us of what he's done. And he's reminding us of what he's done because it should continually bring us back to our relationship with him. Now, don't miss this. This is a massively important point in the entire Bible that is, that is missed so often by so many. He reminds us of what he's done because that is the basis upon which our relationship with him is built. He wants us to make sure that we remember to think the right things based on what it is that he has done. He wants to remind us not that we owe him, but of what his nature is. He wants us to remember the type of God that he is. Because when we remember this, when we remember the character and the nature of God that that establishes our relationship, then we are in the proper posture to worship him in the way he desires. Listen how David says this in Psalm 86. Psalm 86, in verse 1, he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, 
For to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for, for to you, O Lord, do I lift my soul. Now, up to this point, this is the, the standard prayer. Now, it's got some great language in there, but it's a standard prayer. God, do this thing for me. And often, the, the do this thing for me that would come from us is, do this thing for me because I need this thing done for me. Does that make sense? Like, that's how our prayers are structured so often. God, I need you to help me here because I need help here. That's the reasoning of of why we come to God in the first place. But what David does in verse 5, he says, do these things for me. And then he says, verse 5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And then he goes back and he says, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. So do you see what David does here? David comes and he he asks God to do something for him, but he asks God to do something for him based on the relationship that that has been established between him and God and the character and the nature of God. It's not just a blanket request that God would show up because God is strong enough to do it. It's, it's, It's couched in the idea that God is both strong enough to do it and he's gracious enough to do it. And he's established a relationship to do it. Do you see the difference in those two approaches to God? It's not just, God, I need you to deliver me because I need to be delivered. It's, God, I need you to deliver me because I trust that you are a deliverer because I know that's who you are. God is glorified in this much more than if we just come to him and say, I think you're strong, so do this. Don't get me wrong. He's glorified when we, when we recognize his strength. But man, he is magnified when the relationship is put out there that says, God, I know how you have loved and you have, and you have graciously cared for your people. And it's upon that foundation that I make this request. It's the difference between us just simply hoping he will come through and us having faith that he will come through because of what we've seen him do before. God is glorified in that. And it's important that we get this right. It's important that we understand how this works. He wants us to... What's coming here is just Ten Commandments, just the next chapter. And we're going to see this here in just a second. But what's important is that we understand this is the foundation. God has delivered. God is reminding them, I have already done this for you. So, here's what comes next. And it's important that we get that order right. Because so often we get it wrong. And when we do, we miss what Christianity is all about. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look in verse 5. So Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. This is God talking. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured, my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God comes in, in verses 3 and 4, and he says, You have been delivered. And then he's going to give them instructions that they need to obey. 
And if they do this, they will flourish under his commands. Do you, you see how that, that flows, the logic of, of how that works and what God is doing there. He reminds them they have been saved. And then he says, if you will follow, follow these commands, you will flourish under these commands and in your obedience. They will be a nation, and not just a nation, they will be a treasured possession. He's going to give them these commands, and he expects them to obey. Now, we'll get to those commands here in just a few minutes, so a few, a few weeks, but hang on for that. But today, all I want you to see, the main thing I want you to see, is that verse 5 comes after verse 3. Verse 5 comes after verse 3, and that makes all the difference. You see, if you flip the two, then you have the same dynamic as every single religion in the world. Obey, and then you will be delivered. Obey, and then you will be accepted. Obedience is the key to appeasement, but that is not how Christianity works. In God's economy, that is not how he works. He flips it around, and what he says is, I've already done this for you. Now, here is what you do in response. Based on that relationship I have established. Do you see the difference there? He doesn't come to Israel and say, if you guys will be obedient while you're, you're in slavery, then I will deliver you. No, no, no. He shows up and he says, for no good reason at all, Israel, you people have nothing to offer me at all. For no good reason, I'm going to deliver you. And then here's how I, I want you to respond. Do you see the difference in those two things? You see, for so many people, Christianity is, let me do my list. Give me my good Christian checklist. And if I do it, then God will be happy with me and my life will be great. If I do it, then I can feel like I'm saved. But what God says is, no, 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 no. I come to you. I rescue you. I save you. I pull you from death to life. And then... Then, this is how you flourish. This is how you live. This is how you obey. And that difference makes all the difference in the world. And that's point two. God's graciousness precedes his commands. God's graciousness precedes his commands. God calls out Israel. He has nothing to gain from them. Nothing to gain at all. He called out Abraham. He had nothing to gain from him. He calls them out, he draws them out, and then he will give them the commands. Commands that, as we'll get into, by the way, are not designed primarily to restrict, but to give freedom and guidelines, again, for their flourishing. But the commands are preceded by the grace. And so it is with us this morning. So it is with us. So many of us have been convinced that God's pleasure is bound up in our ability to do the commands. But Christian, you are in Christ. And your test has come back with a perfect score. Because we are credited with Jesus' perfect life. We do not have to get a perfect score on the exam. Because Christ has. And what Christ has said is, my perfect score goes to your account. I take all of your errors and the punishment that goes with them. That is the gospel. And that is how it works. That is what it means to be a Christian. And now we follow commands and we follow what God has laid out there for us. Not for his approval, but for our joy. 
for our contentment, for our flourishing. And that is what the commands are designed to do. And then finally, there's a, there's a third thing here that we can't go through chapter 19 without acknowledging and looking at. The third point here is that God is gracious and condescending and coming down to us, but he is not the same as us. He is, he is gracious in coming down to us, but he is not the same as us. So we're going to look at how God gives these Ten Commandments, but before he does it, he makes some very clear rules and establishes some very clear boundaries. Look with me in verse 9 of chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. We'll stop there. If you keep reading in chapter 19, it's just a reiteration of the same thing. God lays out for them, and it goes as it keeps going on, he lays out for them limits of how he will come to them and where they will be and how they will respond. He sets up a perimeter around the mountain. He gives explicit instructions for them not to come any closer. Don't even touch the edge of the mountain because they will die. He knows they cannot abide in his presence. God is condescending to be among his people. He has called out the people of Israel. He has gone before them in the day as a cloud and in the night as fire. He has led them in the desert. He has been there around his people. And now as they come to the mountain, he says, Moses, I'm about to come and give you all kinds of things and reveal so much about me and how you worship me. But there needs to be some ground rules before I do this because you cannot stand in my presence. The people will die if I just show up in their presence. So let's establish this perimeter. And what we see is that even though God comes down to be among his people, he is still not like them. And we cannot forget this. He is utterly different than us. The Bible talks about God in ways so that we can understand him. And they talk about his arm and they talk about him wrapping his arms around us and they talk about his face and they talk about different things that make it seem as though he might be kind of like us. But then as you read throughout the Old Testament, what you find, and then in the New Testament, is that he is really not like us at all. He is utterly different. It is common for us to talk about God as though he were some abstract thing. And then we begin to make demands of him. And we, do, we, do, we, we begin to manipulate him, to order him around, to say, God, I need you to do this and to do that, as though he were submissive to us. But God makes it clear that it is not something to be trifled with, not something to be bossed around. God may have delivered his people, but he has not become their personal genie. You guys seen Aladdin? 
You guys seen the, the live action remake of Aladdin? Will Smith is not Robin Williams. But, and I like Will Smith, but he's no, he's no, he's no Robin Williams. But the, the premise of the genie is that the genie has massive powers. But those, those powers are now under the direction and the guidance of the master, whoever rubs the lamp. For far too many of us, that's our picture of God. We've come to God. We've obeyed well enough. That's our proverbial rubbing of the lamp. And now he owes us. He's got these massive powers, and it's time for him to put those powers to work for us on our behalf. After all, we are Christians. We, we, we hold the name of Jesus as part of our identity. Now God owes us something. But that is not how it works. He is not beholden to us. He is not our genie that we boss around. We don't get unlimited wishes that he gets to grant for us just because we rub the magic Jesus lamp. He's not ours to manipulate. He's not even ours to exist with in the same space. We cannot abide in his presence because he is holy and we are not. And yet he is still gracious to condescend to us to rescue us, and then to instruct us on how we are to worship him. This is going to be a theme all throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. How a holy God can abide in the presence of a sinful people. We're going to talk about the tabernacle. We're going to talk about the dwelling place of God amongst the people of God. But even as we study this and we look at this, this is the riddle that the New Testament answers for us when you get to the Gospels. It's how a God who is utterly different than us can come, take on skin, and live among us. This is the Christmas story. God with flesh on. Jesus is the very image of God himself, is what we're told. And this is where the Gospel is here. This God that we serve, that does not serve us, chooses to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. This God that we serve, that we are beholden to, he is not beholden to us, chooses to come and not come as a king, not come as a genie who's in charge, but come as a man who is murdered. Who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is going to be a theme throughout the book. The, the rest of the book of Exodus is going to be about commands and obedience and the dwelling of God with men. But we have to remember at all times, even when we look at the New Testament, this is part of what makes the New Testament so amazing and the Gospels when you see Jesus' ministry. Jesus is this same God that sets up the perimeter around the mountain and says, don't come near because you will die. But then he humbles himself and he draws near to us. And this is the gospel. This is what Christianity is all about. Not that we are obedient and then we are accepted, but it, that we are accepted and because we are accepted, now we can be obedient. Because we are accepted, now we can understand who Christ is and we can flourish. We can understand who God is and we can flourish. And then you take it on past the Gospels, and not only do you have Jesus who dwells among us, but you have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. 
And the Holy Spirit is the same God that we read about right here in Exodus 19. And he comes and he dwells in us because we have been made pure. Not by the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful picture for us. So as we head into the Ten Commandments, we head in with this understanding. That the commands are not given for, strictly for our obedience and then God's acceptance. But they are given for our flourishing and our joy based upon God's acceptance of us. That is the message of the, of the gospel. That is the message of Christianity. Don't get those flipped this morning because you will never live up to those Ten Commandments. You will never live up to the most basic command that God gives us. The very first one, thou, thou shalt have no other gods before him. We can't even get past the first one. But thankfully we don't have to because Christ is enough. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning. Thank you that you have given us a picture of who you are. That even as we head into something that seems so burdensome like commands, we can see your grace on every page and every chapter ahead of that. Father, help us to understand the true nature of your grace and your mercy. Help us to remember. Father, let that be our prayer this morning, that we would simply remember. And as we remember, we would worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.